This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Max Jeffrey, and I'm joined by James Heal and Kate Andrews. It's been nearly a year now since train strikes first begun, and Mick Whelan, General Secretary of ASLEF, said this morning that the union has made zero progress in negotiations over pay. Kate, why haven't they made any progress? Well, you could come up with a host of answers to that question, Max. I mean, my answer would be that the demands have been unreasonable from the start, but I'm sure there are others who would disagree. You know, we're talking about this in the wake of yet another rail strike. And it's something that, as you say, has affected people for the better part of a year now. So listeners may be listening to this trying to get home or indeed staying at home, working from home because they haven't been able to get into work today. And, you know, it is certainly taking its toll. It's taking its toll on the economy, too. It's interesting to note that in some of these monthly economic growth updates, the strikes are very often referenced as something that we're, we're taking a little bit bit of a hit from. But I think the main problem for the rail unions is is that compared to the average British worker, a lot of their workers are, are, are paid more generously. And also, essentially, the promise that they want, not about pay now or conditions now, but about the future, particularly around automation. It's, it's trying to protect and insulate certain kinds of jobs. Now, absolutely no doubt we don't want major shifts to happen overnight because, you know, that can put people in a really tough spot. But the idea that any government, Tory, Labour, any government can sign up to the idea of not updating and not reforming and potentially not automating parts of his services is essentially to, you know, write off the idea of growth, is to write off the idea of making things more efficient. And it's a near impossible request from the government, which is why I don't think we've seen a lot of progress here. James, the row between the Cabinet Office and the COVID inquiry over Boris Johnson's WhatsApps, meanwhile, is continuing today. There are reports this morning that Boris's team says that if the inquiry asked him for the material, so these are WhatsApps that he sent during the pandemic, that he would happily hand them over. James, what does this tell us about um, Whitehall culture and the tensions between the civil service and Boris Johnson? Yeah, I think when we talk about the civil service, often we sort of, you know, homogenise it all together. But there are obviously tensions in the the civil service between different bits. So at the moment, obviously, there's been this big row between the Cabinet Office and the independent inquiry that's going on. And I think one of the things we learned from the Matt Hancock leaked WhatsApps is that often it can be people who you maybe not expect to be implicated in certain scandals or stories that come out worse. So obviously, I think the person who came out worse in some ways was, was Simon Case, you know, partly because he's the only live political actor mentioned in those uh, WhatsApps. But I think that this is the kind of case where the civil service right now are concerned about what's going to be coming out in those. Partly, obviously, you know, Boris Johnson, but he's obviously now, his team have now said that uh, he's going to be proactive in releasing these. So it's the focus should move away slightly from Boris Johnson and towards kind of other kind of players in the establishment who are going to be possibly implicated in these. And James, you write in this week's politics column about the battle with the blob. And this is how the Tories have fallen out with the civil service historically today and the reforms that either a new Labour government or the Tories want to make to it. Can you tell us about that? Sure. I mean, every prime minister at some point seems to rail against the civil service. You know, New Labour did it. David Cameron did it. Margaret Thatcher famously did it as well. I think that what's really telling is perhaps the shift in language around this term, the blob, 
It was used originally by Michael Gove and his allies to sort of attack and lampoon the education establishment and really was about more about sort of public sector reform and standards in public sector. And now it's shifted to the blob is referred to a kind of partisan activist civil servants out to get ministers. So I think that shift is quite important. It's the kind of two issues that do get conflated. One is around you know, effective public services and government efficiency outcomes, etc. And the other is about more kind of niche element around ministers standards and what can be expected of them and i think the danger of the conservatives is that they got themselves into the worst of both worlds now where often they are quite critical of the civil service but actually aren't proposing any sort of major reforms and i don't think there's going to be i think you've got the, you the francis Maud review which is due to come out but i don't think from talking to people in government there's going to be any particularly significant reforms the last great reform were those francis Maud ones in 2015 and i think actually looking to the future we look at what Labour's put forward on things such as you know strengthening the ministerial code and introducing the new ethics and integrity commission. Actually, we could see the blob, if you want to call it that, strengthened, solidified by the kind of Boris Johnson experience, because his critics were so taken aback by how he represented a challenge to establish norms and conventions that they're going to seek to stop that ever happening again. And this feels like something of a never-ending circus, James. Um, you write in your piece that for all the talk of a sustained Tory war in the civil service, the actual headcount of the civil service is back up to pre-austerity levels. Why have successive governments been so unable to, to tackle what they see as an issue? I put this question to a number of current and former government aides and one of them just sighed and was, it was the tragedy of you know Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson was that they, they had that kind of zeal, but priorities took over, they had COVID. And I think this was the, you do get into this kind of bind, which is that you need the civil service to deliver your priorities. How can you do that at the same time as delivering civil, you know, civil service reform? And ultimately, there aren't that many moats in it. Other priorities came along. And now, and I think also reflected in Kate's cover feature this week, is now that the state is actually, the headcount is up to what it was in 2010. The state has grown a lot bigger. And so I think that kind of reforming zeal has been lost. What I would make a general point of, I think it's really interesting, the kind of lessons of these 13 years in government, which is that often those ministers who who shout the loudest and brief the most about kind of wars and attacks, etc. Is actually going to be substantive action there to kind of curb the blob? Or is it just going to be about, you know, sounding off? And actually, I think the lack of effective action on this in the past sort of seven years or so since Brexit is quite telling. I think a lot of people this week are, are gearing up for just what's going to be the very beginning of this COVID inquiry. And there's already a lot of fatigue. And that fatigue is going to be a problem. I don't know about you guys, like I have heavily buried so many aspects of lockdown and, and you know, we're living our lives again. And I think, you know, from like senior civil servants in Whitehall to politicians to like, you know, your average person walking down the street, there isn't loads of appetite to relive all this. Of course, for the politicians, there's a lot of risk involved as well, because everyone will have got things wrong. Of course, because so much emphasis has been put on rule breaking by politicians, and quite rightly so, I think the whole idea of getting something wrong has a lot of weight attached to it now. And they're going to be a lot of politicians, a lot of civil servants for, for whom are going to be really worried about this. The inquiry is going to go on for years. I don't think we're supposed to be getting any kind of result from the COVID inquiry until 2026. This is bad for public health because we need to learn lessons much faster than that. This is bad for accountability. But also, I just don't think the public appetite is there. I mean, you know, it's recess. There's a little bit less news out there at the moment than there otherwise would be. And still, I just don't think there's huge appetite for people to relive our entire COVID past. So, you know, I think it's rather unfortunate, actually, that the UK has handled it this way. It should have been much faster, much sharper. Instead, I, I suspect we're, we're not going to learn the lessons fast enough. We're also probably going to dwell on a lot of stuff that we don't need to dwell on. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, James. And thank you very much for listening.